So welcome to the show. I'm David Speed. I'm Adam Brazier. And this is Creative Rebels. Uh, it's a podcast for creative entrepreneurs. We started our first company, Graffiti Life, in a small garage. Yeah, it wasn't easy. But we built the company up to the stage where now we're regularly working with brands like Disney and Nike. And we've been lucky enough to make art all over the world. On this podcast, we interview successful creators. Their advice will enable you to take action and turn your passion into a career. There's literally been no better time in history to make a career from being creative. So many people are going to tell you that you can't do it, but we're here to tell you that you definitely can. Right, let's do a podcast. Welcome back, Rebels. Hello. We've got some good news for you this week. If you live in London, that is. Definitely. Or um, unless you can travel to London as well. Yeah, or just yeah, get a plane ticket. Just whatever. Or a train. Or we've got, we've Wherever got you live, just come <laughs> to London because it's going to be great. Um, so 25th and 26th of September, September 2019, we will be doing some live podcasts in the Apple Store. Yes. So thanks. that's the Apple Store in Regent Street. You can go online and sign up. If you search for Today at Apple on Google or you go onto our Instagram and you'll see some, we'll put some links up there as well so you can sign up. And if you're watching on YouTube, we'll add a link in the description below. Yes, we are going to be interviewing Reggie Yates. Yep. And we're going to be interviewing Harris Newcomb, um, two incredible creatives. So really excited to be um, chatting with them live in the Apple Store. You guys can come down. We're going to be doing Q&A so you can meet Reggie, you can meet Harris, you can meet us, um, bring any questions that are burning. And um, we'll also be putting the audio of the interviews up on the podcast. So for everyone who can't get down, don't worry, you'll still be able to listen to it. Um, We're working on doing a video as well. So YouTube potentially, but we'll see. Yeah. Also, all of these events are free. So if you want to come down, just go online, sign up and yeah, we'll We'll see see you there. there. Ooh, Ooh, that's good. (laughs) Today, Adam, I would like to talk to you about luck. That's a great thing to talk about. Is there such a thing as luck? Is there such a thing as luck? There is and there isn't. I think a lot of people get really bogged down with with the concept of luck, um, that it's just this mythical thing that just appears to someone and goes, oh, you have good luck, you have bad luck. And it's, it's really a lot more scientific than that. Yeah. I think that the, the, it's obviously an old cliche, you create your own luck. But I think that's absolutely true because the more energy you put into the thing you're doing, the more opportunities will come from that. Yeah, I like to think of luck as probability, which is kind of like taking the more mathematical approach to it. It's like the more times you put yourself out there, the higher chance there is of something happening to you. Say, for example, there's a 5% chance of meeting the right person that day. If you go out 100 times, you can, there's five of those times you're going to meet someone. If you only go out once, there's a good chance that you won't meet someone that day. Yeah, absolutely. It's a numbers game. And for for us, it's like, so someone we'd really like to get on the podcast is Gary V. And with each guest that we get that has either been on the Gary V show or... Um, has some affiliation to him in yeah, some way. Yeah. The, the closer that we get to that. And then when we do finally get our interview with Gary V, it'll be like, oh, that was really lucky. I can't believe you managed, yeah. managed to get that. But it won't be. It'll be, it'll be calculated. Yeah. It all, everything leads on to something else, doesn't it? It was lucky that we launched this podcast to, to number one, but it wasn't. It was it was calculated and it was hard work and it was everything leading up to, to that stage. Yeah. So, so I think what luck comes down to is being as good as you can be at your craft. Mm-hmm. So whatever stage of your, your journey you're at, you're going to get different opportunities. Yeah. The more skilled you become at your craft, the more opportunities will come. I think that's yeah. that's inevitable. 
Um, I think uh, with the probability side of thing as well, it's like the better you get, the higher Brat probability is every time. It's like when you first get started, there might be a one in a hundred chance. But then by the time you've been doing it for years and you've got really proficient at what you're doing, that might be 20%. So every time you go in, it's a higher chance of doing it. So there's the two sides of it. It's like, one, work really hard and get really good so you can increase your probability. And then two, put yourself out there as much as you can to make sure that you're kind of getting the most rewards from it. Yes. Online, I see a lot of successful people. Um, online, I see a lot of people saying that's easy for you to say to successful yeah. people. But what they forget is that every single person starts from zero. You have to use the resources that you have around you. And so if you have like so some people are starting from higher ground than others, mm -hmm. but really everyone starts from a space where no one is paying their product or brand or creativity yeah everything starts with an idea doesn't it yes and that idea it's then up to you to garner as much attention for that idea as possible and as you do that the more opportunities will present themselves and i think people call it luck because in the beginning those opportunities are very very yeah. few and far between yeah i feel like this week's guest is a perfect example of this as well yeah make your own luck um and lily mercer certainly has done that so Lily's a uh, journalist, um, an editor, a DJ. DJ, radio presenter. But when you look at her career, you can see that every single opportunity has come because of the flags that she's been planting yeah. because of the... So, for example, one way that she's made her own luck is that she was working for one radio station, putting out interviews. Someone from um, Beats, Apple, Apple's um, radio station, saw that she'd done an interview and it was from that interview that she got her gig with yeah. Apple. So every single piece of content that she's creating is a flag. You never know who's going to see that flag. You never know who's sitting in the audience that you're speaking at. You never know who's listening to your podcast, who's watching your, your YouTube videos. You never know who is yeah. following you on Twitter. And that's where the opportunities come. That's where the luck comes um, is just by, by growing that. Lily has literally built her career from planting those flags and then maximizing each opportunity yeah. that's come in from those flags. Um, and one thing that she does that I think is really interesting is she champions new artists. Yeah. So rather than going after the, the huge artists that are already successful, although she does do that as well, but she really, really flies the flag for these young up and coming artists. Yeah. I think it's like playing the long game, isn't it? It's rather than going for those short wins, thinking if I make good relationships with these people now, in 10 years time or five years time or two years time when they're really famous, I'll be one of the people that helped them get there. And you'll have a way better connection. Like if you sit and have an interview with someone who's got sold millions and millions of records, they're not going to be as invested in you as someone who's brand new and know that you can help them. Yeah. And, and yeah, when you help them sell their first 500 records, they'll yeah. remember you forever. Yeah. And because of that, Lily has, really good relationships with like some of the most famous rap artists on the planet so yeah. um really interesting interview uh very cool person and uh yeah i loved it enjoy in this episode we talk about making your own luck interviewing nas and starting your own business Working for someone else made me realise I wanted to work for myself and that's because I realised how long you can spend crafting someone else's business while you could be crafting your own. Hi Lily. Hello. Welcome. Thanks for doing our podcast. It's 
lovely to be here. Very, very amazing studio you've got. I've seen some pink, so I'm happy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's a few bits of pink that you really caught yeah. on to. I I've trusted been... you straight away. <laughs> I've been painting a pink wall all day, actually. I've still got pink paint on my hands, so it's been a pink day. Um, just jumping up in your, your kind of standards now. Yeah, that's it. That's what you need. Just Basically, people might just start covering themselves in pink paint just to say hi to me, just in case, you know. They might work, though. Because I, I like you just because you walked in with a... It was like milkshake-coloured pink paint. It wasn't yeah, just any yeah. pink paint. It was It was the pure mice. strawberry milkshake. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm open to anyone that's wearing pink paint in future. Pink and grey <laughs> is my favourite colour combination. Yeah, any shade of pink with any shade of grey just works really well. Yeah. I'm that, but with pink and green. Yeah. Pink and green. They're Ooh. the best. No, always. That's controversial. What kind of green? Like any green? Or? I really like neon pink with with like a mint green. Okay. Or a pastel green. Yeah. But to be honest, any. So yeah, a pastel. Do you know? Is it Palm Vaults? They've got a pink and green yeah. logo, and that is the. That's those are beautiful. the perfect shades. They work really, yeah. really well. Yeah. But I think someone was telling me about the color spectrum and that the opposite colors always complement each other, yeah. and they. I think. It's maybe pink and green I think pink and green are opposites. Ah. That's how they tried to explain, you know, why I was so into it. Yeah. I've never thought about pink and green before. Pink and brown I can work with oh, in like a 70s, a, yeah, come on, oh, 70s okay. kind of vibe, yeah. Like a Neapolitan ice cream, you know? Yeah. That's, yeah, yeah that like kind of, like vanilla coloured yellow as well. Yeah, yeah, that works really well, that kind of 70s palette. Like think of um, Del Boy's house. Yeah. That's all That's all very pink I, and brown. I do love like a really deep green. It's kind of like almost emerald with like a pastel, like a baby pink. Exactly. Those two together are beautiful. You are listening to Colours of the World. <laughs> Right, we should probably do a proper podcast now. Um, Lily, tell me, when did you first get into hip-hop music? Um, well, I first... I don't remember the exact moment I heard a song and was into it, but the first album I bought, I was eight, and I, it was Bone Thugs and Harmony. And that was because of the Crossroads video. Um, I had an older brother who was eight years older than me, and he was, like, super into hip-hop, but then he was, like, at the age that Old School Garage came... Well, actually, current-day Garage for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, like, UK Garage was, like, what he got into about 16. So I was eight, and he pretty much just gave me all of his records, like, all these CDs that he bought Great. were no longer relevant to him. So I ended up, yeah, so I was watching a lot of MTV with him and ended up kind of inheriting his CDs. But And it was around the time, like, Biggie died. So it was actually, to be honest, quite a commercially you know relevant time like for rap I think it was the first time rap was like in the charts in the UK as well you know yeah. I was watching it on TV on top of the pops or the main kind of performers would be well at least half of them would be rap so yeah I'd say that that was I was about eight years old when I fully did and it just I mean I remember going to like I used to go to play center because I had a single mom yeah so I go to play center and we had this end of summer disco and I like walked up with my more money more problems CD <laughs> <laughs> from like our price with my name in like a post-it just in case anyone tried to steal it and like took it over to like all the rude boys that were DJing it's like in around Highbury and in North London and basically they kind of like looked at it looked at me and were like okay yeah we'll play it but like what's this girl doing with this CD <laughs> but so it was really though from those days that was it really it was the only kind of genre I was into and your mum was supportive of that journey she really was like considering you know she was a feminist and everything it's like listening to the most explicitly you know like offensive lyrics towards women but at sometimes like she I remember like one of my favorite moments was I think it's my 13th birthday and my brother was DJing and it was when Black Rob Woe was out mm -hmm. great song so at the end this is how cool my mum was with what I was listening to but at the same time educating me on it like obviously women aren't bitches she wasn't you know <laughs> condoning it but she goes yeah I really like that song Ho 
And I was like, mm, it's called Woe. But like, <laughs> yeah, like that is basically what you'd assume of the rap world, I guess. But yeah, she just completely was like, yeah, it's really cool. And my mum was really into Motown. Like she, um, she was actually a punk when she was growing up, but she was really varied and loved music as well. So I grew up with like all these Motown, like 45 records in the yeah. house. Um, she told me My Girl by The Temptations was about me and I fully believed her. Amazing. So oh. it was like this kind of, you know, together we were really, so what she kind of pointed out to me was like, as I'm listening to rap, she was like, you know, this is by this person originally and you know that that is originally you know sam cook song so other oh, samples and yeah, stuff. yeah so that's almost connected us that i was like oh this is cool and she's like yeah but it was also cool and i listened to it the first time around yeah. and like it, she actually showed me it was more than and like i was like you know asking questions about the black panthers so she went and bought me a, a book on the black panthers she bought me like the malcolm x's biography like she it, she understood that hip-hop was more than just you know what it was seen as you know in a negative way she understood the education it's a full the, culture yeah do you, think, so, yeah. do you think it's better now? What, the misogyny? The misogyny the, and the... No, if I'm honest. Right. Um, I think I think I feel it's like just we've got we've got more kind of gay rappers out now, which I don't think you would have got in the 2000s. No. Um, and so, so maybe there's a little bit more acceptance, but you still think there's a lot of work to be done. I mean, I'd say case in point with Fredo in the UK recently where like his friend whispered in his ear and he's literally being like written off by a lot of people just because of his friend whispering in his ear and them assuming he's gay. So I feel like, that, especially not in street rap, I'd say that mm. there's a certain kind of rap that you will never like. Because even like, I remember someone was saying about Frank Ocean being really important for when Frank Ocean came out as bisexual. Yeah. That's so important for rap. And I was like, I do hear you, but I don't think it's as important as Young Thug being a straight man with painted nails, dressed on you know for a straight yeah, man to yeah. do that and be so like Atlanta in Atlanta Young Thug is like one of the biggest gangsters like you can't tell him he's not you know allowed yeah. to shoot people and have and wear a dress you know <laughs> yeah. and, and I'm not saying that that's a better thing that obviously Frank Ocean is a greater person in in the world you know because he's not as much of a gangster but he's like you know the fact that he is bisexual but he's singing is less important than a, a straight man rapping and being so core in the rap community well, and like I would say, a young thug. I don't think of him as homophobic, but I don't know if he's. I don't know if he's exactly like welcoming yeah. towards homosexual culture. If you mm. see what I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. He sees it more as it's a it's a style of dress and things for him. But he is pushing the boundaries of what's acceptable for a man to wear, which I think is cool. You found it hard being female in a hip hop setting, yeah, yeah. Like at, I'd say. It's, I feel it more when people don't know who I am, which sounds really bad, but sometimes people treat me differently than another girl backstage just because I'm a journalist and stuff. Like People might assume that I'm a groupie and look at me one way and then right. find out who I am and come back and they're like, oh, hi, nice to meet you and actually bother to talk to you. Um, and I've been in many situations. Like I've been on like the Flatbush Zombies tour bus and everyone being like, why are you here? Like who? How are you allowed to be here? And then like finding out I went to their first ever show in New York and I've known them since before they ever dropped an album like they start to understand you know girls can be friends with rappers which is kind of crazy to people but yeah. you know and same with women that can be journalists um, I do feel though that in a way I think that like you know for, to be a white woman in this world is slightly weirder And but I do think in some ways that throws people off because they're just like I'm just such an anomaly that they're just like yeah I don't yeah. know but like because I think if it would all be different if you didn't know how much I knew or cared about the music yes. so because I am, obviously, it's like sometimes people, I'd read comments on my interviews and they're like, oh, this girl's so annoying. Like, you know, why is this white girl talking about things? And then other people be like, no, she really knows her shit. Like, if you actually bother to watch my interviews in full, yeah. if you listen to an interview, maybe instead of watching it, you might take in more and be like, no, she's actually, regardless of looks or gender, she's she knows what she's talking about. Yeah. How do you deal with that? Um, what, being judged? Or? Yeah, yeah. 
I, I feel, to be honest, we're all as judgmental as each other. So I've been guilty of that. You know, there are many white people in the industry as well. That I'm like, oh God, like, you know, another white guy doing this. <laughs> and it's like, actually, no, they might know more than me, you know. I tend to just think that your work proves yourself. So there's no point being offended when you get judged, you know. It is very easy to take offence when you see the comments and they're cruel because trolls are horrible. But like, yeah, there's not really any point in it kind of affecting your work because you should probably work harder if you are offended, I think. Offense. <laughs> <laughs> what is Viper magazine? Uh, so magazine, I started print magazine. I started in 2013 in October. I was basically frustrated that all the magazines I was picking up were like, I, I grew up on the double XL and the source and mm-hmm. even like hip hop connections in the UK. Like there were, there were a lot of print magazines that just started dying out. And if they did continue, they were like little pamphlets of their original selves. And I do feel because the source and double XL like are pretty shit now, but I was buying the source in probably like around 2000. And I've even got like, I've, I kind of sadly threw away my collection when I decided I was, I was going to fashion school I was like I don't need these threw away like years of like original issues I bought myself like tragic but it was like around that time that I was kind of you know like reading about rap and it was like there would be issues that had articles about the crack epidemic or something that you need to know really to mm. know about rap in you know in its essence and like the kind of culture of it and the history and I just feel like by getting rid of them and only having like there was a point when I I think it was just before I started Viper so my uni magazine in 2010 my hand in for uni had an interview with Danny Brown in it and I was reading in 2010 11 or 12 um double xl telling me about danny brown being this hot new guy to check out and i was like how did this girl that's for like a girl in england for her uni project interviewed notice that two years later you want to tell me about is a hot new guy to check yeah. out that you you're like you're fucking up if if i know about someone yeah. that soon and you don't for years so i just started to feel that they'd lost their core and i also felt it was like i called it like a conveyor belt of of like kind of i think i called them industry dinosaurs which was a little bit rude because i do like a lot of them but it would be like oh rick ross on January's cover and then Little Wayne and then Pusha T yeah. and then I mean like, it would literally be a cycle of the same yes, people yeah, for yeah. about 10 years and yeah. I'm talking about from 2010 to probably 2000 and or even early actually like 2007 to 2014 you got the same people on the same covers every year so so yeah. this is this is obviously a very different kind of magazine but um there's a women's magazine I can't remember which one it is it's something like Closer or one of those ones that you see at the checkout when you're yeah. and um Every single month is either Victoria Beckham or there's or, or there's another one or Rihanna. They but like there's three or four, and I read an article on about why it's only ever this this select few women is because they sell more copies, yeah, exactly. and no one buys it if there's not Victoria Beckham on the cover. Yeah. So they're kind of under pressure to to sell, and that's exactly what like me magazines should sell. Really, that's the goal. But that's where I think it got to a point. I was basically really about boutique journalism and boutique publishing. And that's when I was like, you know what, this is the one time that you can make a magazine that mm. no one's necessarily, not like no one's going to read. But instead of, so Time Magazine ended up folding and like interview, interview still around. But there were these magazines that were like kind of iconic titles that were just really big that ended up folding. And it was just a sign that the generic publication doesn't exist anymore, but the niche one does. Yeah. And that's why with Viper, I was like, it's the only time I think a niche hip hop publication can exist. And it it was, it was really, it was a chance for me to put people on the cover that I didn't, that I thought deserved it. Like Erlen, we put Earl Sweatshirt and Vince Staples on a cover, which I don't, I doubt anyone will ever do again, you know? So it was just, it was more that I wanted certain people to have the shine that weren't getting it. 
But it is a, it's a sad fact that, you know, if you do do, like, publishing in that era or in today's era, you have to do it to sell. And it's just, yeah. It's, yeah. I feel like it's crumbled to the point now I don't think that publications can really exist anymore. Well, I think today's society, we're so used to, like, you can pick your content, whereas, like, Back in the day, you'd have like your four channels, five channels on TV, and that was it. And then you'd have like you get your music from Top of the Pops or whatever, like Smash Hits magazine you bought, or like something like back like ages ago. And but now you've got Instagram and like social media and the internet, so you've got like no matter what you're into, you can go fully into that and get constant content for that. Whereas like if you're into like UK garage around this certain time, it's gonna be so hard to find good information yeah. about unless you know someone who knows someone or there's a really niche like zine that someone's putting out it's like we're in an age now where you can go super niche on something and there's the audience for it as well because you've got the platform to put it out there so you're no longer printing Viper? We are, like, I think basically the next issue that we're printing will be our last because it's our 10th and it's a very nice, clean, you know, round yeah. number. Like, I really love making print, but there's, like, so we started to kind of do video more recently and there's something about our target market being quite young and print being so expensive that it just doesn't really make sense to make a magazine for, like, mm-hmm. 16 to 25-year-olds yeah. that is printed on, like, luxury, you know, paper. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I was never going to make a magazine that wasn't going to be beautiful. Like, when my mum first saw the magazine I remember she was like oh wow it's like a real magazine and I was like <laughs> yeah like what did you think I was gonna like pretty much like a smash hit yeah. I think she was expecting yeah, but, yeah. Um, it was like something that was something I was quite quite proud of was that she was surprised I could make something that was you know more than like a nice magazine it's like glossy and it smells good so I think that that's something that I've massively enjoyed but it's like there's you know like there's um what's they say about insanity it's like when you do the same thing yeah, like expecting the same like if you keep on making something and like it's not like hugely growing each time whereas in like selling print issues yeah. there's no point in you kind of like repeatedly doing it when actually you could be influencing so many more people in a different avenue without them having to spend money yeah. and that's something that we found with doing video like um, we did a it's called Viper the Movie but we did like this kind of short film with lots of different kind of cuts of interviews we've done behind the scenes performances and like that can go so much further and it can be seen by people who can't afford a magazine in yeah. like m- like millions well not millions countries there aren't millions but you know like countries across the world can see that rather than paying 20 pounds shipping before you've even bought the magazine so I just feel like um, and I'm not saying that about all publications that's specifically with Viper but I do just feel like there's there's a really nice era of us being print and now there's a whole new era that we can kind of play around with more and that makes it more exciting for me I suppose as well like if the reason you've started it is to educate the world on all these great artists that people aren't really seeing then it's like if that's why you're doing it then it's better to be able to do it to a million people rather than just the 200 people locally who can afford to go to that shop and buy a copy like yeah it's like it's more of the reason why you're starting it that's the thing I think it's like you know there's so many places like you said to buy into an artist and it's it's actually way more like I don't know to actually have it the interaction between just you and the artist is so much more important than having a magazine as the middleman yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's like unless you can do something in a really like you can bring something out of them that they haven't you know like there are so many great things I've seen magazines do like even I mean I can't even think of something right now but like there's examples where people will do this iconic moment like even to be honest when I can't remember who did it was it Fader who had like Danny Brown and ASAP Rocky interviewing each other and stuff and just having these artists interviewing each other it's a really key way to get something out of them that you wouldn't get yourself yeah. so and it builds the, like, the trust that they have have between their friends it's like you know but I think the problem nowadays is that the whole like the concept of content 
and everyone making content and like not really understanding what goes what like people are really into and like kind of like you essentially get sometimes I think people making a bit of a fallout with the artists or even you get the cases in like when Chief Keef violated his parole and ended up back in jail because Pitchfork took him to a gun range yeah. it's like there's a huge like <laughs> massive like part of like the I guess the publication not understanding the consequences of an artist or even where they really come from like oh let's go and film you in the hood and it's yeah. like no you could actually get us in trouble as well as yourselves so I don't know I just think like content has almost become dangerous because people are so excited about like just putting things out without thinking about whether it's good or not yeah so what's your content strategy do you sit down and, and plan things or is it is it literally just about the artists more than it is about like taking them shopping or doing something wacky for views yeah pretty much like kind of dealing with the artists like and at least how they want to be portrayed like our interview with G Herbo we did in, in Chicago he was like I've always wanted to get my hair cut in an interview and like brings his barber and it was like that was really cool because it was like not just a sit down interview and it's like even the barbers like kind of I think one point like he's like getting in on the conversation yeah, and yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. so but the thing is we were like oh well we can't I want to go and do like I want to go go karting with someone and go like get my nails done with someone but it's like you have to kind of ask them what they want to do rather than like kind of subjecting the artist to a yeah, date yeah. they kind of don't want to do like which is essentially kidnap you know so <laughs> that's where you got I do think it's best to almost like you touch base with the artist either on the date or even beforehand if you can and figure out something that both of you want to do because like I, we did a shoot for uh, Viper it was probably about three years ago with Neff the Pharaoh who's signed to like E40's label he's part yeah. of the Bay Area and we just like brought him to my house and we're like okay well we're gonna go and like take pictures in like the local estate and he's like okay what's that we're like oh the projects he's like hey I'm out here in the projects like, and he was just like like with it he just wanted to just kind of hang out and go where we wanted to but then you take a certain kind of artist somewhere and they want to be you know in a certain zone protected they don't want to be seen yeah. to be too accessible I don't know it completely depends so I just think you network with them and preferably their management as well who will give you insight beforehand You've interviewed some of the biggest names in the world, so like Nas, Chuck D from Public Enemy, like all of these icons of from from hip hop music. How do you approach uh, an interview with someone like Nas? Because you only you only got six minutes with yeah, him first time, the didn't first you? First time, yeah. um, Nas. That I mean, I was terrified. Like it was funny because after I interviewed Nas, I actually that night I like woke up at five in the morning and just started crying, and I was like, "What's wrong with me?" And I was like, "I think it was the biggest thing I'd done at that point." It was almost like this climax that when I, after it was over, I was like, God, what do I do next? But um, yeah, that was like, I didn't even know kind of what to do in that, in that six minutes to justify it. But I did actually interview him for like a half an hour uh, piece for uh, Clash magazine for the cover. And like, I mean, with Nas, he's quite a, like, he's very quiet and, well, not he's not very quiet, but like, he's he's quite a kind of reflective and subdued kind thoughtful, of person. Yeah, yeah thoughtful. Mm. So you don't just go in like excited. So, it was harder to kind of draw questions out of him and with Nas he was one of so like I mean you guys are currently into you know what it's like when someone when you ask someone a question they hit you with a question it just throws you and you're like ah like fuck what do I do, I do? and Nas yeah. like because my ex-boyfriend was from Queens so I was like oh I heard that you're the only rapper from Queensbridge that can still walk through there like you know you can still go back to the, your projects and like apparently this is true like apparently it's just Nas and like he just goes how do you who told you that and didn't answer the question. And I was like, ah, <laughs> I don't know what to do. Um, I've like, not like, I've, I mean, I actually thought I'd broken Mary J. Blige when I interviewed her because I asked her a question and she started laughing, but she was so perfectly like poised and prim. So like, yeah, I mean, sometimes you, you don't get what you expect and it can really throw you off and you just got to remain calm. But 
generally like yeah I think I don't I, I try and go off their energy if you see what I mean so with Nas I just kind of try to be as calm and not excited and like the interview was cool it was just us two and like it's actually a studio in Kingsland Road we were in like this kitchen just like like a kitchenette, not even a full kitchen. Should have taken him to a petting zoo. I should have, literally. <laughs> I mean, oh, Hackney like, Farm. next time. Yeah. <laughs> next time I'm with Nas, yeah. I mean, Hackney City Farm was the closest one as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, So, I mean, that's goals. But, I like, this is the problem because people don't sometimes understand the press run thing where you just go into a room and you have to just join in yes. with them. Yes, yeah. But, like, I do want to get to the point where I'm big enough to be like, hey, hey, Nas, meet me at the petting zoo. <laughs> <laughs> or, like, become to the point where it's, like, they're so, so essential to their UK press run that they have to come to where I say. Yeah. But that's what you're building, so that's, so that's cool. Exactly. Yeah. I find interviewing so hard, and we're, we're both still learning, because you're, you're thinking a million miles a minute, because you've got in your head the list of questions, but then you you want to give the best to your audience whoever's listening you want to give them the best product and you might say something and then it'll be like you have to store it there but then sometimes you'll go a little bit too far on that I can't we can't go back to to that so you just have to disregard that and then move on to the new thing and I find it so difficult but it's all a learning process isn't it it is and I tend to find it's more natural to go with what that, so like it, say I said something five minutes ago and then I say this and you can kind of usually you come back to what I said five yeah, minutes ago at yeah. some point because I've tried to do interviews and like keep it in a rigid order and I feel like it's not as it doesn't feel as conversational f- for the person involved mm-hmm. which is the most important thing is that they don't think it's an interview that's what I figured out it's like you literally have to make sure that they don't think they're being interviewed like and because like not in like a manipulative way but just to make them feel like they're I mean for a start like you hope like it's funny Zane Lowe actually said to me never I said that you know when you're doing a press run and like they've just you know they've just got off a plane they're jet lagged and like you just say like while the cameras are being set up you just say oh you know I like I'll be don't worry this will be quick and he said never say that again promise me you'll never say that again and he was basically saying like your time is as important as theirs don't apologize or try and he was and and it was a really good thing to hear because at that point I was kind of just like so Zane Lowe has interviewed a million people and he's probably one of the best interviewers on the planet and for him to remind me that I'm it's like it's a shared stage it's not like you're not like the pauper, like yeah, talking up. It's going the king, on that like, same level yeah. that they are. Yeah. And not to say that I definitely haven't had a career like Nas. I'm not saying that I'm equal to him, but just to be able to, because you can't have a conversation with someone that like you feel is below you or, you know, it just doesn't, yeah. you have to click with someone and feel that you're on a level to talk or you won't say something as interesting because you think they won't get it. So I feel that it's that balance of finding the conversational side and the banter, but also being like, hey, like when I interviewed, I think it was when I interviewed Raycon, like the first question I asked was about Enter the 36 Chambers the film and how they'd all gone to see like the Wu-Tang had gone to see this film in the movies like this as kids and then when it came to naming the album and I said something about it and he was like you really know your shit like and it's straight away because it's my first question he's like it's like you rolled up his sleeves was like alright I'm with a fan yes. I yeah, can get down yeah, yeah, here yeah. Like, and saying, like Bone Thugs and Harmony told me they were like she really knows her shit like said it to each other in the interview because yeah. you've got to think like you do know your shit yeah. and there's going to be so many people that interview them who are just like media people no idea who yeah, they are yeah, yeah. they're yeah. just told to be in the room with this person at this time they'll look at their Wikipedia, find out the basis is about them, or just they'll be in there with a set album, of questions. It's like, album, yeah. tell me about your new single. Yeah. Why have you written this? And just have the generic stuff that they're, they're doing it because they have to. Yeah. Whereas if you can kind of make them feel like, oh, actually, I want to be here and this is a cool person I actually want to have a chat with, 
and that's so much better. It's so true. And it makes that's what I meant about brightening up their day and being like that little ray of light in the middle yeah. of the 20,000 interviews they did that they could be like, hey, I like that one because they talked about Dixie. Yeah. Like, yeah, I've li- I remember talking to Mike Miller about Dixie and like it was just like it's interesting. Oh, yeah, I've got, um, Alchemist said that he brushes his teeth with Nando's sauce. Like, these, like, just where if it isn't like, obviously, you don't want to like it is about work and they do want to promote something, but yeah. actually, you're just like, you know, promo, promo, and then throw in some amazing like random stories and yeah like I've had I mean I had Just Blaze choke me or like kind of <laughs> like sorry that sounded really wrong it was, like, it was a self defence technique he was trying to teach me okay. but he was like it's Five Fingers of Death which I think is from it's not coming to America it's from um, oh the other Eddie Murphy film that's iconic the that, Trading Places so yeah. there's the Five Fingers of Death technique and like basically it's also from Kung Fu movies as well there's a, yeah, so there's a there's a thing. yeah so like um, they, they charge up like all five fingers and then if it's placed on, on it'll make your heart explode or something in a Kung Fu film yeah, yeah. so I feel like that's where they got the scene from in Trading Places because it's kind of yes. like they're in Be a like cell a parody. and this guy's yeah, like yeah. talking about it but so yeah Just Blaze was like oh um, I'll show you you do this and then basically suddenly I'm in a headlock and it was like <laughs> the most surreal and and that was really early on in like my like career basically of interviewing so there's and that's where it's like yeah you could interview if you basically if you're a boring interviewer you're not going to have any of those stories I'm sure yeah. because you've got to kind of go in with this angle of like there was um, a really good thing I learned at fashion school weirdly was my teacher said with interviews you should ask the bad question last so like the question that you know is going to offend if you are going to ask one okay. which I mean my rule I try not to offend and I try not to like I like I asked, I've asked certain rappers about their friends who have passed away because they were also musicians and completely regretted it and I don't yeah. ever want to do any I don't want to ask any negative questions because yeah. what I've realised I think I did it with Farrah Munch as well and like I didn't realise till that that time that I was like you leave that person in a state of mind of sadness essentially it's like a really horrible thing to do it's like a complete mind fuck and I would hate to have that done to me so yeah I don't do that but like um I do feel that like if you are going to ask a question that I can't think of an example now but it's even like for example you could ask someone you could ask young thug about Lil Wayne or something or like something that you know they're going to be like I hate that guy you know it could fuck up the whole interview if you ask it too early yeah but my teacher in uni she I think it was asked she asked um a very famous I don't even want to say who it is because I believe he's passed away since but a very famous tv presenter who wore a toupee and she uh, did this whole interview with him and the last question she's like so tell me about your toupee and he hung up on her and she was like but the thing is I got the interview so even though obviously he's mad he's going to go and tell my boss off or tell me and my boss off I've got the interview so I walk out of there with what I came to do but if I'd gone in and asked him about his toupee then I've lost like the whole interview so I think it's like there's certain techniques where if you're going to do something a bit silly maybe do it at the end so they know you're serious also I think like it's your career as well so it's like if you're just a journalist and you're there to try and literally steal a story out of someone to make yourself look good then that's a pretty negative way to go about it but thinking like if I'm interviewing this person now I could interview this person 10 more times in my life so I'd rather them go away liking me off that first time yeah. <laughs> and thinking like and then when you email and be like oh, I try to see an interview for this and I'm like oh that's that dick who asked me about that they're gonna be like oh yeah she was really cool yeah it's so true even we, like yeah we interviewed Torre in New York and um he I've just recently watched um the uh, surviving R. Kelly documentary. It's so interesting, like seeing him, because uh, they only show the clip of of him asking R. Kelly, "So, do you like underage girls?" Which the dude, like, simple question. You either go yes or no, and, <laughs> yeah. and like preferably no. Like you're on trial for underage <laughs> girls. You go, no, I don't like underage girls. And he goes, mm, define underage. 
and uh, and Tor- <laughs> and like I know that Tor- like because I had a chat with Torre off mic by and he and like inside his head he's going oh my fucking god but he has to just keep this calm demeanor but he was saying like the whole time he was leading to those questions but he had to spend an hour yeah. asking questions that he didn't give a fuck about in order to get to that place where R. Kelly felt comfortable enough that he wouldn't just shut the interview down straight away and leave. So he had to like lay these foundations of questions, questions, very light, like light, nice, easy ones, knock these ones away, and then he could go in for the kill. But I'm so glad that I'm not in the position where that's my job, that I have to try and embarrass you or get you to say yeah. something bad. Yeah. It's like, I just want to, you to say nice things. I want to know like what's worked in your career and like how you've built it. Yeah. Whereas it's- like... Yeah, so it's like the master manipulation to do it like that, and like, and also, I mean, if you think about it, like interviewing, it's, it's it's kind of investigative, which is in a yeah. way can be used, yeah, to find out bad things about people. So it's a very it's very tactical and it's a good tool for various reasons. But I know what you mean about it not being like you don't necessarily want to go down that route, and like I think it's just being known as like an interviewer, like even like a Wendy Williams or there's certain people. It's like you just have this like. Like a, it's like almost like a dirty name where people are like, oh, like that's just a style of interview yeah. that you're going to ask me some shit I don't want to talk about. Yeah. Like I've never, yeah, I've never even, I'm trying to think if I've had an interview, I've had a few interviews where I've been a bit like, oh God, is he, is this person going to say some shit? I, I mean, I did have, who was, oh my God, who was it? I think it's Freddie Gibbs. Someone started, yeah, it was Freddie Gibbs started going, man, fuck Jay Mills in my interview with him because he had beef with Jay Mills. And I literally said, I'm not even going to talk about Jay Mills. And he said, man, fuck Jay Mills. It was like, you can't even skirt around something or say like, oh, I don't want to speak about that huge controversy surrounding yeah. my name. Let's just, because then it's there. You have to. So you kind of, it's like you have to decide, are you going to, yeah, or are you not? I, yeah, it's very hard to do that. And I've, I've inter- I mean, I've interviewed, I've interviewed a convicted, uh, believed convicted rapist. I've interviewed Mystical, who was, he's served time for it. Oh, I've no. interviewed, I've interviewed a convicted, like, a manslaughterer. Is that how you refer to it? They, uh, they killed of... someone, but it yeah, was manslaughter. Yeah. So, and you, like, I'm not, I'm not, like, that sounds really almost boastful. I'm not saying it like that. But I mean, it's like, sometimes you have to put your feelings of, for those crimes aside to, yeah, and I remember speaking, before I interviewed Mystical, I remember speaking to a fairly well-known rapper and being like, okay, I'm going to interview Mystical. Yeah, like, I don't know, is it, it feels a bit weird. And he was like, like, kind of was like, very derogatory about the woman that he'd been, that he had, had pressed charges against him. And I was like, if this is, that's what I meant about that whole rap thing. Like the misogyny, certain things are still there that you can't even, you can't try and tell a rapper to be a feminist in certain situations if they have a view about a woman doing Mm -hmm. something. But that mystical thing, I was a bit like, oh God, not only am I going to interview him, I'm interviewing a rapper who a lot of other artists think is, you know, got played by doing a rape charge that he essentially did commit. I don't know. It's it's a really, it's such a hard zone to be in. I was talking about what you were saying earlier about like championing people how do you pick because you must get loads of people just sending you stuff all the time being like play me play me I I like it's funny because I was talking to uh, like a musician I was with recently and I said when do you know that the song's good Mm. and for me it's about 10 he said three seconds but he's like listening to beats and stuff he probably you know is listening in a different way but for me it's within yeah 10 seconds I know and often the vocals haven't even started it's a feeling more than it's anything else Mm. it might be like even because like okay Little Nas X Panini I'm not I'm not going to say I'm ashamed to like it it's my favourite 
cheesy song yeah. but like that's the kind of song that it's like there's just a moment in it where it's like a little bridge and I was like this makes me feel ecstatic like there's an actual like build up or a crescendo in it that it has an emotional feeling yeah. for me but sometimes I'm not even smart enough to know if that's there do you know what I mean sometimes I just like the song um, for me the huge thing is a bass line so if it's got a really good bass line or if it's even got like a certain production style like there's certain producers like Southside the producer from 808 mm-hmm. Mafia any beat he makes I'm bound to like but yeah, I'd say that it's for me. It's like there's a certain magic that I feel from the song quite early on. But then there are also just certain artists that it's like even if the song's not as amazing, I'll love it more because it's them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. How yeah. much does, of that matters in terms of like who they are compared to the actual product? Generally, it doesn't matter who they are. I'd say I can tell straight away. But once I build up a bit of a kind of I don't want to say repertoire, but almost like a I guess a fan a fanship for yeah, yeah for that yeah. person. Like once yeah once I like so any song G Herbo ever puts out is going on my blog, even if I don't think it's G Herbo's best song is going on my blog. But someone that I'm quite new to, it might be that I have to take like you know. I might listen to the first four songs of them that they drop before I say I, I like them and that yeah, I'm yeah, fully yeah. with them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, because you don't want them to let you down. Yeah, and that it, can happen. That yeah. can happen after years. Yeah, it can. Yeah. So um, through your blog, that was how you got the rinse gig, right? Yeah, which was quite crazy. I just got a DM from someone at Rinse saying like, "Oh, this should be a radio show," which I didn't see. But yeah, it was pretty quick that it turned into one. And then um, how that long? Was six how long years. was that between starting the blog and that? Probably a couple of months because I got the, the... So I moved to New York for like three months um, just on a tourist visa thing and I was there when I got the DM. So we were trying to figure out a way for me to record and send the show back but it just didn't really make sense. Like, I think I did a couple... I actually did a show with Snips for like a couple of... DJ Snips on um, Rinse for a couple of months but then it ended up being that... Like, he ended up going to Kiss, I think and then I ended up doing my own show for six years with Rinse uh, Weekly which was literally... It was like underground, unsigned, everything. You're still and, there? No, I'm at NTS now. Okay. So I went from um but I wanted an earlier show time and I wanted to be I wanted to be in the daylight hours basically and Rinse's schedule didn't have space for that. Okay, NTS cool. offered me four till six on a Friday, which is prime time. Yeah, great. But it's monthly, so it's not but I actually I find that makes me like I can be more selective with the music. Mm-hmm. You get exactly what I really, really am impressed by that month, so and I, t- I put mixes in it more so that they'll be like, instead of me playing whole songs, they'll be like actually 45 minutes or so of a mix with like 50 songs in it. So yeah. We always talk about planting flags and like the blog is a flag and then someone found that flag and then from that you got the show and then the show is a massive flag because that's a flag every single week that's going out for lots more people to find. Did you did you find that your career kind of picked up after yeah. after getting rinsed? Definitely. And um, I even, because I was doing video interviews, I actually am now doing video interviews for my own kind of YouTube, yeah. but it was like, but originally it was like, so I worked for SPTV doing video interviews. Then when I went to Rinse, we had the Lily Master show like on TV kind of thing. So I, I actually did a Chuck D interview. I don't know if you ever saw the interview I did with him was on, on video. And that was seen by a guy who worked for Apple in America. And that's when Beats One, the radio station was starting. So he literally saw my Chuck D interview and was like that like this guy is like growing up on I mean he's growing up in the era of punk and Chuck D and like yeah. you know wild hip hop he was really like impressed just by the fact that I was that age asking yeah. and as intensely it's like a guy his age like having lived through it he was like okay this girl's actually yeah. you know knows quite a lot about it do you do him. like mad research beforehand or is it all kind of because you've grown it. up with it you've got yeah. it to, to like I might listen to things like the Chuck D interview I asked him something I just listened to it like because I, I always like that day I'll be watching I, I always watch YouTube interviews because I like to see how they're going to be and like yeah. if you know like 
if someone's bantery or not, you know, they might be really serious and like that. So I watch YouTube interviews and I also will listen to their music pretty much like, or at least their recent album and a bit of like my favorites for the day or so before just to get in the vibe. And like, so mm. with the public enemy interviews, I didn't, I, I'm like, I was born in 87. So they were dropping the albums when I was like, you know, I wasn't like listening to it in real yeah. time. So like, but I did grow up with it. So I was like, and I, I mean, that's the most iconic group like for their sound. So, but I remember asking, I was like, your sound's so abrasive. Was that something you actively, like pursued and I remember Chuck D saying that he had a girlfriend who she hated the sound of his beats and he was like when I'd make a beat and she hated it I knew that I was I'm pretty sure he said that literally what his thing was and then he had another beat and he said I can't remember if he said the tea kettle going off inspired him or if his mum thought it was a tea kettle the beat he made but it's it's one of their most famous I can't think, uh, you, you're not. Bring the noise, bring baby. Bring the noise, it is, yeah. bring the noise. I was like, so, but that's where it was like, he, I literally was like. now that you say that, it, I'm like, I'm listening to it in my head going, yeah. ah, yeah. <laughs> Makes and sense. Th- that's the thing where like, asking those kind of questions and I mean, even, I haven't, I've never interviewed Reza. He's one of, I think he's, I've interviewed six members of Wu-Tang and not Reza. So hopefully one day, bucket list. But I was like thinking about Reza, he samples the weirdest sounds and Raekwon told me about what he, he would sample like a noise from the pipes. Like he's got, because click, click, it's got a pipe sound. Like if you listen to Click Click by Wu-Tang and it's like this, it's the sound of sampling that like you only get from sampling a real noise. You yeah, can't yeah, make that. Yeah. So it's like, I'll, I'll pick up on those kind of things. And like, I do have a really geeky way of listening to, to things or like, like I, I feel like my brain does work slightly weirdly when listening to music. So a lot of that is thoughts I have and other things are like things over time I've just believed are a fact if you see what I mean yeah like public enemy make abrasive raw sounding music so I'd say it's a mix of that that goes in and then I'll literally sit and write down I only write 10 questions usually because I think 10 questions is enough to get yeah enough out of otherwise you end up with I've had an hour's long interview to transcribe and no one needs that (laughs) (laughs) so yeah I think that's what I used to leave me with the question who's on your bucket list Jay-Z Jay-Z's number one um, I've, I want to like I mean I want to tell you this but I really hope no one steals this basically Jay-Z is on my bucket list because he's got a song that I am convinced that he's written in the frame of mind of Scarface or no not Scarface Manolo from Scarface his best friend it's a verse it's like uh, someone. if someone is a real Jay-Z fan they're probably going to go back and know exactly which one I'm talking about but I want to ask Jay-Z were you writing that song from the perspective of Manolo and Scarface and I believe he's going to say yeah and go how how the fuck did yeah. you figure that out like but there's a few clues on it um, I also yeah so Jay-Z's pretty much number one like I, yeah I mean that's like I feel that's the one that I will get the most out of in terms of like because that's like one I mean my favourite song by Jay-Z is Where I'm From and I think that even just breaking down that alone would be an interview for me yeah. like let's hey Jay-Z let's annotate this and that's it <laughs> so if you're listening <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, how how seriously, like, do you... Because, I mean, you've been in the room with his contemporaries. Yeah. So, like, it's not crazy to think that one day you will sit... I know I know, access to him is, and over the last few yeah, years, yeah. is really restricted. But, it, I mean, there's a real possibility. I did want... So when, I think it was 2011, I, with SBTV, we went to New York. We filmed a reality TV show and the last episode we went to New York and we interviewed Funkmaster Flex, Mob Deep, like R.I.P. Prodigy. We interviewed him, literally sitting in the studio with Prodigy and Havoc. Like, and Papa, Papa Mob, who 
he's like their, their uncle I don't know but so we did these like really iconic interviews but we were like okay we're, we're there for a week let's interview everyone yeah. and I actually emailed I don't know why I had Jay-Z's PA's email but I emailed her and this is like yeah 2011 Rock Nation era kind of yeah. so I be- and I emailed her and I say, like, hey uh, we're going to be in town next week you know just wondered if Jay-Z's free for an interview and she actually replied <laughs> I nearly fell off my chair just for the reply but yeah. she was like um, thank you for your email um, uh, unfortunately Mr Carter is busy is booked up next week um, of course he is like and but she actually replied and let me know but she you know I don't know if she's still his PA that was like seven years ago now but my point being I think you are right that it could be I mean the fact I got reply from his PA was enough to yeah, say that yeah. they, they respected the, the request but like obviously I got a request two years in advance at least it's, it's just putting the work in because, I mean, like when we interviewed Torre, looking at his story, like he's doing exactly what you're doing. You're just further, like a little bit further back than he is because he's been doing it for 20 years it's longer true, yeah, than you. It's true. And I think if you just keep putting that work in, like eventually it won't, it probably won't even be you that facilitates the interview. Yeah. Yeah. People like people will That's be calling true. out for it. It'll either be your audience or it will be whoever is managing him or like it, the the everything will align because you have put the work in to get to that stage. And I think that's where it does kind of play out like that. Like Combat Jack is someone that I actually, I, I did interview Combat Jack. He, he passed away as well. He was an amazing, but I'd say on the level of Tory, like he basically was a journalist that then started his own podcast, yeah. which was iconic in its, its own right. So, but that's where it's like, I, I and I find like even Chuck D, when I interviewed Chuck D, I mean, he didn't really know me. So it was like more him bantering, but I was like, oh, I'm with the legendary Chuck D. He was like the legendary Lily Mercer. And I was just like, started laughing awkwardly because it's just such a crazy moment to have that yeah. guy say that. But it's like, it, I think it does get to the point where, you know, and I, I find like, I don't want to be like my reputation precedes me, but it's like, I do find that often I'll meet an artist or something and they're like, oh no, I've heard about you from whoever, like, you know, or even like luckily because of socials, people can look and be like, oh, that guy follows her. Oh, okay, she must be legit enough, you know, if that person's like, you know, still follows I've heard her. you talk about your socials before actually and it's really interesting. So although you haven't got like the hugest following, like you still got a size of like a decent amount, but like, although it's not huge, like the clout of the people that follow you. <laughs> Which apparently means more. I've been told brands are like, yeah, no, does. that's yeah, like, yeah. yeah. Cause you know, you're getting to like, I don't want to, I don't want to be that girl, but you you know, you're getting to certain people when you, when I am posting you ever. But I think what I find, like, I still, I still wonder, like Just Blaze that I follow me after the, the choke incident. And like, I remember Jamal Edwards <laughs> from SVTV being like, don't tweet anything stupid. We need to interview him. Like, <laughs> and I tweeted some stupid stuff since. And like, I think he's still there. Like, I don't really check to see who, cause you know, it's like, one, like I remember, oh God, Raekwon followed me for all of a day. And I was like, uh. <laughs> but it doesn't, it's, you know, it's like, it's more. And also I think I must be so annoying on socials cause I post so much music. I don't like, I can't imagine what it's like to be a rapper that's like, oh, like, shut up with this guy I don't even like. Yeah, <laughs> His yeah. new mixtape. Yeah, yeah, But I think, yeah, like, I do tend to, I, I don't know, I appreciate the the people that do follow me on socials, but I don't tend to, I try not to be too clouty, do you know what I mean? Yeah, so the kind of the way the algorithm works is if someone likes your page and then their fans like similar stuff, you'll hit the explore page on theirs. So to be followed by lots of big people who are in the same niche as you yeah. is absolutely perfect like if you posted lots of content that is similar to what they post yeah. there's a good chance it'll be shown through their explore got it 
The only thing is, all those rappers just post mad weed pictures, and I'm like, I try and be like respectful, like <laughs> yeah. not to say I don't condone it, but because like, like I've got all these like drill rappers following me, and I'm like them posting me like in a little dress, like I'm just imagining does it go on their explore page if they're only liking like King Louis? But look, I just <laughs> I think you're you're being your authentic self, That's like, true. and I I really like that. There's no there's no bullshit on your on your socials, like you're just being yourself, and that's I think that's why. Because for a lot of the, a lot of these people, like you're so different to anyone that's interviewing them normally, and that must be a breath of fresh air. It must be refreshing to, like, in floats Lily just being Lily, and that's yeah. cool, man. I think it's great. Like I I wouldn't change a thing, because because if all of a sudden you started being a bad man. it's not gonna work it's funny because i've been djing for this artist as well shocktown who's an amazing artist who's like um like he's got basically he's got a lot of clout from a lot of like like the more i don't know how to say it basically he's he was in jail so a lot of the guys that he's kind of you know around in music kind of look up to him in musical ways but also because he's a bit of a kind of hard guy but so basically i was like djing for him and i walk up behind where his friends are and everyone that doesn't know me yet just looks at me like are you lost? Like, do you, do you know these guys? I'm like, yeah, no, I'm his DJ. And they're like, his DJ, you. like, And it's I, I just find it really amusing. It, it almost like, I almost like being, because I always think that the worst thing you can be is a stereotype yeah, or a yeah, cliche yeah. of what people think you're going to be. So like even, and I mean, on such a level, it's like like my dad, like with looks and stuff, my dad, was he always taught me that like, there's nothing, like no one's going to treat you very specially just because you're pretty. You have to be, interesting to you got to have you know got to have something to you it's not enough to just be pretty and Mm -hmm. he's being like that with my sister who's like stunning so I'm really excited for her to be like you know she's already trying to pursue things because she knows it's like you have to really have some substance to you and I think that in this world a lot of people they perceive you a certain way just based on how you look and when you surprise them you double in value to them because they see that there's something there yeah I do a lot of portrait photography with like beautiful models and I always say to them, like, if we're talking about Instagram and stuff, like, treat your account like you're not pretty. Yeah. Because it's really like, because so many people just like, just shameless selfish just again and yeah. again. It's like, you're not providing any value there. Like, the only people are following you are just guys who fancy you. It's not like there's nothing of like quality there. So, like, put content out. It's actually good because that, you're not going to be pretty forever. So at least... Like a very short amount of time. Yeah, exactly. So it's like make it so you're actually like there's longevity in your content. Like you're going to be on social media for the rest of your life. That's just what's going to happen. So be something that's actually like people remember. I think treat your life like, yeah, like you're not pretty. Because yeah. like even I've been in certain situations. I'm like even I'll walk into a shop and say hi to the shopkeeper and how are you? And they're like... Jeez, like I mean I'm from a, a certain part of London where people can be I'm from yeah. like Essex Road and Islington where it's bougie in parts but it can also be really rough so I feel like certain people just don't expect you to even walk in and say hi or acknowledge someone's presence mm. and when you do it's like I don't know people just take you differently like I, I think there's one the worst thing in life you can be is rude mm-hmm. and like or petulant and like expect too much for you know from other people just because you were born pretty like so I think and the same with talent like I'm not saying like I don't no I do have a talent with interviewing but is that a talent do you know what I mean I'm essentially I'm like because people think of me as like a like I'm I'm a curator I don't create really I curate what I think is amazing and like I do create around that create a magazine I create podcasts or like you know or like um, interviews and you know mixes but generally I view myself as a catalyst for pushing that rather than it being about me and I think there are people that do what I do and make it about them and it's not yeah. as interesting. You you shouldn't be the main subject when you're carrying a bunch of great music through. So 
it speaks it should speak for itself if you allow it to and that's yeah. the best way to be with and same with I'm sure with your photography for example you don't want to like if, for example Terry Richardson it's a negative trait to yeah. be to have such a I don't know like a trademark image because mm-hmm. then how many people start trying to shoot like Terry Richardson they yeah. don't stand out at all so it's like I think you just have to almost figure out what your niche is and if you don't have a niche then that's fine because you can kind of like I don't know, Taylor, what you know you're good at until you find it. Yeah. But don't try and force one. Like, <laughs> no, I think like when you start anything, it's like look at everyone you admire, try lots of different things and then find what works for you. Don't just try and mimic someone because it's really hard to mimic someone. Especially, like, you can't keep it up. It's like imagine living your whole life and it, it all being fake. Like you might as well just be yourself, find something you enjoy doing and just roll with that. And often the thing that you think is really shitty suddenly becomes cool, so stick yeah. with it. <laughs> yeah, and just and if there's no one around you that is into that, just go and find the people that are, because if you're into it, some other people will be. I think it goes back to when we were talking about like going against the grain and and sort of friendship groups of, of all like, everyone has their role within a friendship group. And then all of a sudden, if you break that and try and do something new, I think it's why a lot of people are like scared to start new projects and stuff. Because if you all of a sudden break from the box that people have put you in, it, it frightens people because oh, that wasn't what I expected from you. Oh, you're going freelance, but you've always had a nine to five. This is, this is different. This is scary to me. And because they can't picture themselves jumping out of that box, they will give you the advice of like, uh, well, you know, oh, that might fail and oh, you're going to lose your house and, and just like filling you with fear. Yeah. And that's, people <laughs> that's do so that. True. But it's, it's so evil that people will do that. Like someone will be so scared that you're going to do something you love yeah. and they're not, that they'll just literally sabotage it. But I do think that, like, I don't know, I think life's too short for, like, because even I had a thing, like, I mean, probably approaching 30, like, because I feel like life is so long now that people have three or four, well, not three, if you're lucky to live that long, you can have two to three or four careers, yeah. different ones, like, not just, like, kind of co-aligning. But I had, like, a complete lo- lack of focus and, like, kind of lost my passion with Viper. And I don't, like, I, it's really sad to have that with something you created. And like to then, and then I was a bit lost for a minute. It's just like, well, I don't, obviously I, I love it, but like, I don't like it as, I don't like my current relationship with it. Mm. And it almost feels, I'm not sure if parents ever have that with their kids. I hope it's not that deep, but <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like, do I still want this child? Like after, when it's five, do you know what I mean? Yeah. But like, I, I ended up thinking, yeah, I do want to keep it. I just want to adapt our, you know, yeah. our relationship. And like, I don't want it to like, creative jobs especially when you're working for yourself or trying to like kick something you know off the ground it's the most draining thing ever because you're so almost like it's this pipe dream of you believing it's going to work and then after five years you're like shit is this really going to work like have I am I insane and then you have to almost like refine the balance and go no 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 it's I've I've done this I've done that it's all aligned in a good way but I do, you know, I need to make sure I'm happy with it every day. And I, I think that's where for a creative to lose focus on the thing that they spent their whole time crafting, it can be terrifying. Mm-hmm. And like, that's why I think, or even if you haven't found that yet, like, you know, trying to find what your creative zone is, it is really terrifying, but you'll never find it unless you kind of explore it. So yeah, I think it's completely fine to evolve as well. Like yeah. if you look at pictures of yourself when you're like 13 or 14, you'd be like, well, what the fuck was I doing? We don't talk about those. Exactly. <laughs> And it's like, but back in the day, you'd have spoke to that 13, 14 year old self and you'll be like, I'm going to be like forever. This is exactly who I am. But like people change, people like evolve. And it's like, I think it's fine for your creative passions to evolve as well. If you're massively into one thing, it doesn't have to do that forever. Just because you've spent all this time doing it, it doesn't mean you can, you don't, you don't like, you're not tied to that. It's the sunk cost um, theory, isn't it? Of of be, oh because I've already put this much yeah. into it, I can't leave it behind because I've, I'm already invested. Mm-hmm. 
And that's, yeah, holds too many people back. Yeah. I was reading this book recently and there's a story that it's not quite exactly the same, but it's a, it made me think about, you know, sometimes you're asking life for something and you keep on being like, oh, that's what I need. That's what I need. If that happened, I'd be fine. Yeah. And it's the story. This woman's like uh, sitting on top of her roof as the, as the floods come. And she's sitting on top of her roof asking like her kind of guardian angel to save her. And like, oh no, it's just for the water to go back down. So will you save me by the water going back down so I don't have to leave my home? And apparently like three boats come by with space for her to get on she says no to every single one and then as the floodwaters rise and she dies she goes to heaven and says to her guardian angel why didn't you save me and she said you didn't see those three boats yeah i was it's just that you were too blindsided by the water going down to see that that was your option to get out and because you didn't take it out you know and i think it's like sometimes you're so determined to have what you believe is the right thing for you that you kind of ignore what's actually good for you around in everything it could even be in a relationship if you see what i mean but it's like in career like you're so sure that like you're going to get that job and it's going to be like that that when that job comes up with say a startup you're like no but i always want to swear for apple and like you know you can literally i don't know sideline yourself in ways because you're so set on something that is complete fantasy mm. the and, amount of yeah. dms we're getting from people that are, are saying oh, i've just left my quote-unquote dream job and they always put it in quotes because they thought it was going to be their dream job but it actually turned out that <laughs> working for whatever xyz company just is not what you'd imagined it to be I always said to people like uh, interning because I interned for a lot of magazines growing up and and I was like you know you can go and intern for Vogue and maybe make some cups of tea or you can go to like a literal like I went to War Magazine which was what War Nails became and like I was literally working for Sharma Dean Reid when she was still doing styling but she went on to do War Nails I used to get my nails done like for free in the early days of War because they just wanted to practice and like that like if you look at like my CV not that my CV is a bit weird but I got told it was really it was good it was impressive and I was like but is it because it's just like but I've got SBTV I've got War Nails Apple and like you know and even like Rinse FM and NCS they're all very cult brands and also the, the so Sharma Dean Reed and Jamal Edwards are both MBEs they've both got MBEs yeah. like which as Sharma's like not even 35 and Jamal's like I think he's just turned 25 or 6 yeah like I've worked for two people at like which is I'm 31 it's still pretty young and I've worked for two people who have, who have MBEs and they're younger like they're younger than 35 yeah. it's like I just think that I wouldn't have had the opportunity I've had if I'd gone to work for MTV and like I'd love to work for MTV if they're listening but but SBTV was the thing that I went to and I got to interview Mary J Blige and ASAP Rocky and all these people from Wu-Tang because there was no one like higher up and more you know mm. skilled they were like well you can do it you know what you're talking about and we were just a bunch of 20 somethings running around doing interviews at like all hours just trying to do as much as we could but that's why I do believe if you're maybe it's different now that was like almost 10 years ago but if you are going into a creative world I think you're best off approaching brands that are slightly lower in the you know the ladder in order to get actual real experience and yeah. to be well, a valued member of the team early on yeah. you can end up with shares rather than just making tea and photocopies yeah exactly I've said this about to people all the time who are working like corporate jobs or go down that route it's like if you do that you just do one thing and you do that one thing and there's nowhere you can really go with it but if you start your own business or you're doing something for a smaller company you wear every single hat it's like if you go and work for nike they've got how many thousands of employees all have got one tiny job role that do something really really specific whereas like you start your own business day one you've got you've got four thousand jobs you've got every single little thing and it's like by doing all those different things you can try lots of stuff and be like actually i like doing this i don't like doing that and it's in that kind of creative process of just like going through everything that you learn what you're actually passionate about which I think you get a lot of people who 
they've got those cor- kind of corporate jobs and they'll try that and then they'll move to somewhere else. And like, it's a really slow process to find out what you want to do, which is like great. And I think people should definitely do it. But sometimes it takes people 20 years to find out what they want to do because they've been in these tiny little pigeonholed roles for so long and they've not even known what was out there as if they just tried something earlier on. Even if it's just like a little side project, you'll have learned so much more and you'll have got so much more different experience from it. I think it's kind of sad what holds people back sometimes because even I had a thing with do you guys know Madbury Club um it was like back in probably it was like 2008 or 10 they had basically a really cool blog they were four I think it was four guys all creative one of them is still the Flatbush Zombies manager mm. and it was a photographer who were, who was with Nike like a few of them like shoot for Nike like campaigns and basketball campaigns and stuff but they were basically just four really really talented creative guys that like basically started a blog together and I used to be so jealous that they had this cool set and like it was I wanted to do I did have a couple of blogs before I did my music one like just fashion ones but I was like I want a cool click that blog you know I want to have friends that blog but like all my friends were into the same things as me but not wanted to sit and be a blogger they all wanted to actually go out and get fucked and like go to fun (laughs) events and not you know and I wanted to work like but that was something I was really jealous of and in the end I kind of did I guess I did do it myself with Viper years later I kind of built the confidence to do it alone but I think that that's something that you can hold yourself back because you you don't necessarily have the confidence to do it alone or you you know you're too scared to you want to do it with a click like but I think that's something I regret a bit not just moving forward on my own and like and like I was being a bit of a sheep and then I found my inner wolf and was like no I can do this by myself and I found my click after because of that I mean it's a great real click but you have a work click that you know they're into the same like they you know even if it's like a new trainer drop or like a hype beast link sent across but my friends wouldn't give a fuck about that so it was like really hard for me to see how to get into that creative world and be this blog character without the support system of my friends so yeah there was a point where you nearly quit everything and went to be a bartender, right? There were many. I mean, the, the, that bit, basically, my godmum, this was just before I got the beach job, and I think I was doing Viper, but I was, like, struggling on Viper alone, if you see what I mean. It wasn't it wasn't consistent enough to be, you know, paying all the bills. And my godmum, so my mum, the penguin that I mentioned earlier holding the mixtape, my mum gave me this penguin that's, like, from, I think she, I don't think she stole it from a nativity scene. Someone else did, and I think <laughs> she paid real money for it in a charity shop. But I love this penguin. It's like a little fake penguin. So my mum gave it to me, and me and my godmum mum live like close by so we're we're having saying goodbye on the street I'm clutching this penguin and my godmom basically says to me you know I think maybe you should think about like getting a real job on the side or like a, a real job to do while this is on the side and I literally just looked at her I was like Anna I just I just can't like I can't and I'm like crying holding this fake penguin on Essex Road like just like not screaming at the sky but essentially being like no <laughs> and um and in the end like I think it was about a week or two late two weeks later I got the beach job and like I do always feel that there is that, and I'm sure this goes for many creative people, like you have your rock bottom where you're like, I believe in this, but I'm probably crazy because yeah. like I literally can barely pay my rent. Like, oh, it's, it's so peak right now. And then literally it happens. So, and like, I was really lucky that it was a job I wanted and stuff. Some people have to take a, you know, like it could be a corporate day job you don't want to do mm-hmm. to to build your website at night, but it's going to be sick because soon you'll have that as the real job. But it does, I think it's really, it's... um. What's the word? It's not draining. It's just, it's, yeah, it's tough to like, to have that pipe dream, especially like my parents were so embracing of me being that creative and wanting yeah. to do that. Like I did internships where, you know, my, my parents helped me survive because I wanted to do an internship instead of going and getting that bar job. So I was born like super lucky with my parents embracing it, but not many people do. 
and not many people actually do make it because they have to get a real job. So I was really lucky and I'm glad that I, you know, I'm glad that I stuck it out a bit longer and I'm glad I had the parents that would let me do that and then pay them back <laughs> at a later date. One thing I say to uh, a lot of people who have that, that parents question who maybe don't have the supportive parents of creativity is you have to understand where your parents are coming from. Typically, like there's two kinds of parents. There's the parents who misery loves company. They want to bring you down because they've had a shit life and they resent having a child because it's actually meant that they couldn't go and do whatever they wanted to do, which is a really toxic thing, which I feel sorry for anyone who does have to deal with that. It's really hard. Um, and then you've got the other kind of parent who is dealing with love. They love you. And that's why they're giving you this advice because they think it's the best advice that they could give you. And they're like, be safe. The way to do this life is to have a job and a nine to five and that because that's what they did. And they don't realize that the world has changed. So even if you don't have those supportive parents, it's all about like self-realization, I guess, and knowing because you could have quit that day when you stood in your tears with your penguin in the middle of the high street. You could have you could have packed it all in and then you wouldn't be sat across from us right now. And I feel like the people who win are just the people who keep going. Um, I mean, that being said, you, if you've got a shit idea, like don't keep go, like listen to people. If they if no one's buying your product after the first three or four years, then then maybe it's not working. But as long as you are consistently building momentum, then that's a sure sign that you're onto a winner. And if you do just keep going you will reach the the promised land. But then I I have a whole thing about reaching the promised land because there is no promised land. Exactly. It's like if you're not, it, like if you're in love with the process, you can be happy for your entire life. If you can only be happy when you reach a goal, then you, you're, you've got to reset each time that you meet a goal and you've got to set a new one and you're not going to be happy in the reaching of the goal. You're only being happy for the goal and that's going to be a very fleeting thing of like, I achieved this, now I can buy this car and then move on to that. And that, that just doesn't work. It's got to be like the, the actual process of the building that, that drives you forward. It's got to be, in, I mean, enjoyable as well. Like, I was lucky, my, my parents both had, I've got two creative parents that both work for themselves. Very different. My dad is a landscape gardener. So my dad like lays the York stone for a living. Like it's, it's creative, you know. But then my mum, she basically, it's actually 20 years this year. Sadly, my mum passed away last year so she didn't get to the 20th anniversary. Oh. But she started a company in, in 2000, well, I was, I was 11 years old, so what, 2000, no, 99. She started a company that was a film library, um, an archive film library. And so this is like, I mean, you you know, like when you watch like, like BBC documentaries yeah. or if you watch any like um, kind of like B-roll of like streets and at night or I mean, she had like, so she was the representative for a lot of other companies. So she had like, I mean, the most expensive piece of footage she had was the Elvis Presley interview with Ed Sullivan on the Ed Sullivan show. She even had like, I mean, I've seen like home movies of the Queen as a kid at Belmont and stuff like insane footage. And like, I mean, Fela Kuti, she had like a... She, not the Martin Luther King speech because I don't even know who owns that yeah. but probably I'm sure one of the news agencies but she had clips of, she had Martin Luther King speeches like you can her website well her company is clips and footage you can literally go on the website and just watch clips that you would buy so Amazing. I grew up like that was my first job was like logging archive clips like saying like just look like shot listing basically but so growing up with that and like it being one like really abstract like because I love vintage, I mean, I love vintage everything, like, you know, I like, there's something about vintage film especially, but like, it's just nice to know kind of, like, 
there's there's an interaction with it that I do get probably equally from music. So I don't know, just seeing my mum set up that company and seeing the whole, like, the use of it. And, like, so that's something I do plan to get into now. Like, maybe you starting to make some documentaries with this footage and stuff. And, like, even if it's not going to be as... It's, like, might be a bit more abstract. Like, but it's just, like, amazing to have yeah. the access to this amazing footage. But so that's the thing. My mum, like, was creative and also was, like, a bit of a, like, I don't know, a maverick like that. It's It was, like, her own company and she'd come out of making the documentaries and she she did some amazing thing where basically they had a a contract saying that women couldn't start a company within five years of leaving that company. Just, no, sorry, they said that men can't. Okay. Men can't, but they didn't say anything about oh, women. Amazing. They literally didn't even mention women like being capable of setting up a company. <laughs> so my mom basically just left. She they were like asked if anyone they were trying to get people to um what's it redundancy take redundancy yeah. and she was quite high up and she they didn't want her to go but she was like I will take the money set up a company doing what they did and yeah. she within like 10, 15 years was actually winning awards that she was up against her old company and now there were like three members of staff as opposed to her old and having like 50 hundreds whatever yeah but like even the fact she could win with three people when they had hundreds it was you know so that's kind of like and my mum was really like quite elegant and graceful about it she was never she wasn't like some harsh like businesswoman she was like just did her job and did it in a really sick way so yeah that's that probably inspired me a lot with her and that's why I think like she didn't. She had a toxic mom, so she wasn't the toxic mom. So she was like, just follow your dream, but be good at it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like, she was good at it. So obviously, I was inspired. So yeah. What was the best piece of advice she ever gave you? My mom. Okay, this is the best piece of advice she ever gave me was a Jay Z lyric. It was so beautiful, and it was because I was frustrated that I was seeing other people that I thought I was kind of maybe on a par with. They'd probably done more than me and stuff, but I was like, I should have got that job. I should have got to write that for this magazine. I should have done this. And my mum was like, don't watch what other people are doing. Just focus on your own lane because, like, you need to just be seeing ahead. And she was like, blink. she used to say blinkers on because she was into horses. Mm -hmm. So blinkers on, like, you can't see what's next to you. And then she said, remember what Jay-Z said, I ain't looking at those fours. I ain't looking at you fours, I'm looking past you. And she, I was like, all right, I'm done, mum. Like, I was, like, laughing, but actually was super impressed. Yeah. So yeah, that was the best advice she gave me, and it's—I mean, it's—it's it's the best advice ever, right? So good. <laughs> Just trying to imagine my mum dropping a Jay Z lyric. I don't think it's gonna happen. Also, my mum is well; she was super middle class. She's very Audrey Hepburn with it. So imagine her saying that in like oh, a. Amazing. She wasn't posh, posh, but she was yeah, well spoken. That's why I loved it. I was just like, you're too funny. <laughs> <laughs> I think that. A lot of people we've interviewed have been really lucky that they've either and and you've had both like super inspiring parents and also uh, worked for really inspiring people and that's why this podcast exists like we're so lucky now that even if you didn't have that you can find it all online and you can just look at other people's stories of how they've succeeded and you can just apply it to your own life and that's that's why we're doing this and I think it's such a beautiful time to be alive because there is that you you can be inspired by anyone now um you've just got like in your pocket you've just got access to like the the best brains in the world even like netflix like i'm not even like i i do watch a lot of things but like when i try and watch creative like documentaries and stuff yeah. like there's so many like there's um my my inspiration pretty much is um diana Vreeland, who was oh, she's she, amazing yeah, yeah. literally the, the queen of magazine editing like anna Wintour's great but like no one was diana Vreeland, and yeah. she was the woman that first put celebrities on covers so no one that it used to only be models until uh diana Vreeland came along and put like i think it's one of the rolling stones or someone on like harper's bazaar yeah. but like she she edited vogue and then harper's bazaar and that woman was incredible. And that's where it's like, I think what's quite cool is I can take this fashion editor from the 60s or 50s to 80s, I think. And then I can 
like look at rap as you know and apply that to rap if you see what I mean that's creativity like, is taking is taking two opposing things and smashing them together and that's rap like that's collage yeah. you know it's like the most amazing thing about rap for me is the is the mixing and merging of cultures and sounds and so and that's why I think that the, there's so many people that I am inspired by that cross reference like from fashion to music yeah. and like you know and then they like Dapper Dan for example Dapper Dan is like the ultimate G like sadly it's, I'm not too happy with what's going on now with him being used as some Gucci porn but anyway like that's someone that's like he's worked in rap as much as he's worked in in fashion so yeah and that's why I mean like if you if you spend a bit of time on the internet you can find documentaries about all of these people yeah. and spend hours being inspired whereas like yeah like imagine when we were growing up it was like I mean magazines were that for me so yeah yeah and uh, what were your main kind of takeaways learning um, under the wing of like Jamal and Sharmadine? Like believe in yourself and like, because both of them were, were mad young doing what they were doing. And they like, I mean, they did iconic things. In order Didn't to Jamal be, write a book about yeah. believe in yourself? Self, self-belief. Yeah, self-belief. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've got, I think my name's in the credits actually. Is it, yeah. is it? <laughs> it was cute. He put a thing up on Instagram recently and it was the Google, he did a Google Chrome ad when Google Chrome first started right. and we were all in it. So like, it was like X Factor was on and like we were on TV right before X Factor and the ad break. It was crazy. Um, the one thing I will say I've learned from them, which is like, it sounds, it's, I hate saying this because it sounds like a disservice, but it is respect to them. Working for someone else made me realize I wanted to work for myself. And that's because I realized how long you can spend crafting someone else's business while you could be crafting your own. And I think, I'm not saying like, as we've said many times, the sheeps and wolves thing, not everyone wants to run a company and it's a lot of people are completely content doing something creative where they follow a mold and they just keep making that and that's just happy. But that if you are the kind of person that wants to like lead and wants to have your own, like, you know, like you two have got this podcast. It's like, you could be putting your work into another company's name and your day job and like be completely happy with that. But at night you can do something or even like many people I know spend like 20 years of their life working for a company and then say in their 30s they're like no I've always wanted to build bikes I don't know but like you can literally like I don't know I think I mean we could be doing this podcast for a company uh, exactly and that's the thing which blows my mind that when you have like sick presenters who are doing like amazing interviews or whatever but they're doing it for another company I've I've got a friend who I've got a friend who works for a really big magazine and she's making all of these YouTube videos and she's come up with this like cool concept I'm not going to say too much because I don't want to hot her up too much but um, (laughs) she's doing these these amazing YouTube videos and I'm just like you could be doing these for yourself Yeah. exactly and that's why I think that especially when it comes to like you know if you're shit at branding do it with someone that's good at branding and maybe you don't want to just do it yeah. for someone else like yeah. you say you can you could be the voice and you just want to be the voice so your brand like you know makes everything else happen and that's totally fine but when I was working for them I was like oh I could be doing them. I could make my own SBTV. I could make yeah. my own one nails and I made my own Viper and that was what I wanted yeah. to do. And that's what my mum did. So it's like, that's where you can see. And like, I'm not in any way saying that you shouldn't work for someone else, but I do feel that I just, by seeing that was like, yeah, I've, I know it's for me. To it's, do that. it's happiness, isn't it? Yeah. And you're one of the, you've got good self-awareness and you're one of those people like we're those people that couldn't do that. Cause it would always be gnawing away at the back of your head. Yeah. Cause that is where we find happiness. Whereas if you find happiness working the nine to five, which a lot of people do, then that's cool. And it's all it's all about finding whatever works for you. I've got like I've got no pro- like we talk a lot about the nine to five. Absolutely no problem with people who are doing that that love it. My my issue is with the people who keep on doing it even though they hate it. And it's like I want more for their lives. You you don't have to do it if you hate it. Exactly. And same with what I do. Like I've I've always made a point that I don't ever want to be like 
I never complain publicly about my job. No matter, like, I'm, I've been, at a, I've, I was so tired when I went to interview um, Rat King. I walked into a glass door and I had a black eye for about two weeks. I, like, I'm so tired at times that I can't see glass. But I don't, like, if I ever complain about this job, do you think there's not, like, five people that want to go and interview Rat King? Yeah. Do you, like, I, how dare you? You get to go and hang out with, like, my favourite artist and you're tired. Oh, sorry. Like, you can't, you can never put yourself in a position where you complain about something. Like, if, if I, if I was cleaning toilets tonight, hell yeah, I'd complain. But, like, I mean, you, you've got to figure out, like, that it's one, it's a job you chose, it's a lifestyle you chose, you plan your own days out. But three, people would literally kill to be in your position just yeah. to have that one. Some people will kill to, to take a picture with Schoolboy Q, and I spend 20 minutes interviewing him for a YouTube video. And, like, yeah, I'm giving people something, but ultimately, I get to go and hang out with Schoolboy Q for 20 minutes. That's one of my favorite rappers. So I just think it's like, and that's why I'm a strong believer in the if you, you never work a day in your, in, of your life if you do something you love. And, like, you have to do that. Otherwise, who, like, why would anyone care that you resent your own life? Like, I'm yeah. sorry, I don't fit you that. Like, yeah. You're the CEO of your yeah. own life. I, say, I always say that. Like, if there's a problem with the company, the, the fault lays with the CEO and yeah. you are the CEO of your own life. You're in charge of every single decision. And it sounds really harsh, but like you can change anything that's going on in your life. I have empathy, like things are hard. Oh yeah, but, that's true. And, and like there are fucking struggles and like we, because we've all been through them. Yeah. Like, like we've all been through, like everyone sat in this room, every single person listening to this has been through something hard. Yeah. But there's, there's ways of dealing with things and, and the decisions that you make are what, like your life is your decisions. Yeah. And if you change your decisions, you can change your life. And I, that's the thing, I think, I mean, I've, we've all done a certain job that we hated. Like I used to do, I mean, I even used to um, stand at a trap nightclub has been gone for years, but it's now, I think, still Stringfellows in Soho. I used to basically stand, I was actually, this is so terrible, so I was actually underage, but I would be the person that stand there and be like, hey, do you want to go to trap tonight? And like lead a gang of people to the door of the club and I got paid five pounds for every person I got in. And like, I remember when I was, I think I was 17, I made a hundred pounds a night and I thought I had made it. I literally thought that was it for me. Like I'm, I'm a promoter for the rest of my life. <laughs> do you know how long it is working, standing outside? So like even one in the morning, like some, like I was outside a club recently and I saw the security and I was like, yeah. I feel for you guys because security, one, you're totally sober, two, you deal with dickheads and three, you're still outside till three, yeah. four in the morning. So yeah, no, I'm definitely, I don't complain about anything to do with my, my work, but but the, but I won't say I didn't work, yeah, my ass off to get here, that's the thing, it's like, there's a compromise there. I like I put in the hours to be here, but like, I still won't turn around and say it wasn't worth it, do you know what I mean? <laughs> Well, this was awesome. Where can people find you online? Uh, at Lily Mercer and uh, lilymercer.co.uk. I always feel like a rapper when I do that and they like spell their, their tag. But um, yeah, so lilymercer.co.uk is basically the home of everything that, you know, anything you want to listen to or find interview-wise, mixes, that's all there. Amazing. Thanks Thank so much. Thank you very much. No, it's been a good, amazing chat to have with you guys. That's the same. Thanks for listening. We're trying to help a lot of people with this show, so we need your help to grow the community and spread our message. If you know someone who'd benefit from hearing what we talked about today, or they just need a little nudge in the right direction, pass this podcast on to them. If you want to hear more, then subscribe to us on iTunes. And if we helped you with anything, we'll really love you forever if you can leave us an iTunes review. It makes a huge difference. See ya. See ya.